All right, uh, well, we are going to continue in the life of Christ. When we left off last time, we had looked at uh, the account of the raising of Lazarus, one of those uh, visits uh, in between Hanukkah and Passover where Jesus had gone to Jerusalem. Uh, and it's because that, of Lazarus. After that, however, because, he, because of all the turmoil this raised, he retreats again with his disciples into the area of Perea, which is on the other side of the Jordan, north of Jericho, kind of where John the Baptist had been working and baptizing when he was active in his ministry. What we're going to see now with the episode today is now Jesus has set his sights on and is determined to go to Jerusalem. So we're getting to now the, the, that, that Passion Week that where Jesus fulfills his call as Messiah in a way that none yet are anticipating, and that is through his death and resurrection. But he has steadfastly set his face towards Jerusalem. Uh, we've skipped a few things, and I did that in order to um, make sure that the triumphal entry uh, coincided with next week. So we'll be able to teach the, the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. So that's kind of why I did that. Don't worry, you're probably looking at the Gospels thinking, man, we've skipped a lot of stuff. It's part of it's intentional in that we've I've been trying to look at just the episodes in the life of Jesus leading up to his Passion Week. Now, a lot of the parables and things we haven't really looked at. What we'll do is we'll go back and then look at the teachings of Jesus as we go. I mean, after we've gotten the actual trajectory of his life. So that's what we're looking at. So, you'll see the outline. Uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 10. Mark 10, uh, and what we're reading here is also, much of it's in Matthew, much of it's in Luke, and I'll, we'll explain some of that as we go. And I've got the outline divided into two parts, a presumptuous request and a persistent request. And I do that based upon two verses that in the English are exact. In the Greek, the word order is a little bit different, but, and that request is, I mean, that, that question, it's based on a question, and it is, the uh, first one is in verse 36, and this is to James and John, Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And then we get down to verse 51, and this is Bartimaeus, a blind beggar. Jesus asks him, what do you want me to do for you? And in both cases, they make a request. The first we'll see is rather presumptuous and based on a misunderstanding, a continued misunderstanding the disciples have about the nature of Jesus' messiahship. Well-intentioned in some ways, but also very selfish and ambitious in others. And in the other case, we have right before, this is the last recorded miracle that Mark has. You know, there's other Gospels have a few in Jerusalem, but this is the last one Mark records. And interestingly, it's, a, it's once again someone who's blind who is given sight. He wants, this request is very persistent in that he wants to regain his sight. And there's more than that going on, obviously, and we'll unpack it as we go. First... We're going to start with, as he's going to Jerusalem, and his disciples are following him, there are other people following as well. That road from Perea through Jericho and on up to Jerusalem is well-traveled, and it's getting near the Passover, and you have pilgrims who are traveling, not just Jesus, there are other folks who are heading towards Jerusalem for the Passover. And it's in that context that we're going to read these first few verses. I'm going to divide the first outline point into two. Verses 32 to 34. We've got our designated reader here, Jay. Yep, yep, yep. All right. 
Give me a minute, I'm finding it, 10. 10.32. And then you're going to stop at 34. 10.32 to 34. Okay. All right. Jesus predicts his death a third time. They were on their way up to Jerusalem, and Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, and those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and took them where they thought was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and they will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit upon him, flog him, and finally kill him. What terrible people these are. Three days later, he will rise. That's it. You did good. Thank you, sir. Even with your little commentary. Good All job. Right. All right, yeah. Pardon terrible me. people. But they were. <laughs> All right. Well, you hear, so we have very, very subtly, you know, he just said, and they were on the road. So they're on the road heading to Jericho and then on the way to Jerusalem. And you'll notice we get a description of the people with them. We see that Jesus is walking ahead. So there's this idea of the rabbi leading his people, and he is leading. He is steadfast in this, and that is what is concerning to these people. Uh, you have the disciples who are astonished by these things, and there's the... Uh, the phone of confirmation. Yes, uh, disciples who are, are, are astonished by what's going on, you have other followers who are afraid. If they've been with Jesus any amount of time and they've heard any of these stories, they know that the people in Jerusalem, the leaders in Jerusalem, are out to get Jesus. They have a death sentence on his head. So naturally, if they're following him, even if they're going just to celebrate the Passover themselves and they're associated with Jesus, there's some fear involved. And given what he knows the disciples must be thinking, he pulls them, the inner circle, the twelve, aside, and then gives them once again this prediction of what's going to take place in Jerusalem. This is the third time Mark has recorded this. Once when Jesus, when Jesus asked Peter, who do people say that I am, and Peter gave his, his famous confession of faith, Jesus then told them what was going to be happening when they went to Jerusalem, what's going to take place. The other was after the transfiguration. So in chapter 8 and in chapter 9, he gives this. But in each case, it gets a little more detailed as we go along. Look in chapter 8, verse 31. This is after the confession. He began to teach them the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. Now here's famously when Peter says, uh-uh. And Jesus says, that's, that's Satan talking, get behind me. So right away there's this misunderstanding. Then in chapter 9, verse 31. This is after the transfiguration. And in verse he, said, he was teaching, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. And notice the next verse. But they did not understand this, but they were afraid to ask him what he meant by this. And once again, they have a, a kind of a weird understanding of this. I mean, not weird, but just what, what people thought, that he's going to Jerusalem, he's going to declare himself king, and it's all going to be great. There's going to be this great glorious moment of this king. And now he really parses it out. 
So there's a, a, there's a slow revelation to the disciples of what's going to take place, uh, and perhaps even some of that in Christ's prayer to the Father and him understanding fully what the, the Father's will is for him in Jerusalem, even him knowing a, few, a little bit more as they go. All that being said, of course, this is so precise that you can imagine that uh, many who, who, who are skeptical about the Bible and the truth of the Bible would say, this is just too precise. This can't be a prediction. This must be later that Mark or whomever has written this gospel has put these words in Jesus' mouth kind of as a, kind of an afterwards sort of prediction because it's so precise. But uh, I don't think, if, if, if they don't have trouble with Jesus healing people and, and knowing a lot of other things about people, I don't, think, I don't know why they should have trouble with this. Uh, this, this perfect foreknowledge of what's going to take place. So, he tells them what's going to take place. And what's intriguing is now, once again, there's a misunderstanding about this. Even though it's so precise, we have the benefit of being on this side of the cross, of course. They could not conceive that the king, the Messiah, would go to Jerusalem, and then this would happen. He would be betrayed and tried and turned over to the Romans and mocked and scourged and killed. And they, the word cross is not used there, but that's, they know that's what Romans do. All these things are beyond them. Maybe thinking he's speaking figuratively of, this is going to be tough, but uh, we'll get through it kind of thing. Uh, but now we have James and John approaching Jesus. And here's where that presumptuous request comes in. In Matthew's account, it's James and John's mother who escort him, them, to Jesus. You're thinking, well, which is it? Well, it's probably, it probably is the mother. Mark just was just like, oh, gosh, that's embarrassing. He just left it out. But in both accounts, Jesus addresses James and John. Uh, so it's interesting to see that added touch uh, in Matthew. And not that that ever happens with our own children, We'll get mommy to go fight my battles. And as a, as a principal, I never have to deal with that. <laughs> that never takes place. Well, let's hear what, what this, let's finish out this part of the outline through verse 45. So verses 35 through 45. So read that aloud for us. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever you we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right hand or left is not for you to grant, for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentile lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you, you must, among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Awesome. Of course, that, pa that particular paragraph ends with that famous passage to, to give his life as a ransom for many. And we'll look at that as we get to the end there. But here we see once again their expectations turned upside down, as Jesus does so often 
Just recall the Sermon on the Mount, if you will, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, how he turned everything that they were expecting upside down. Just think of the Beatitudes and how backwards that sounds to our world. Well, here, once again, this desire for glory and for greatness is turned upside down. They don't recognize that this ultimate moment of glory, the enthronement, is at a cross. So just think how ironic that is, that they want to be on his right and his left. And think of the crosses on the hill. Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking for. So given that, and now let's look at the timing. So they've just told him that, and so now James and John and Mama come a little more secretly, say, and listen to the presumption. Uh, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. (laughs) Whatever we ask, we want you to do this. Okay, Mom, (laughs) Dad, uh, if I ask you something, will you just do it no matter what? In other words, that, that presumptuousness. Now, if he truly is, as they are thinking, he's the king, well, the king can grant such requests. You know, think back of Herod. I'll give you up to two-thirds of my kingdom, and the, you know, all those kinds of things. So a king can grant those requests, but how presumptuous. A, in just that, you know, just the ambitious pride that goes along with it, and B, in the misunderstanding that has led to it. Well, Jesus, of course, says, well, what do you want me to do for you? All right, what is it? And I'm going to put a piece of gum in my mouth. And they said to him, Grant that we might sit in your glory, one on the right and one on the left. And of course, we all know the place of highest honors on the right, next highest honors on the left. And it has a picture of some eastern potentate sitting high on his throne with his viziers right here, on the right and on the left. And that's what they're picturing in his glory. This is going to happen. You're going to Jerusalem. We want to be those guys. Now, why would they? Some have speculated, too, that, well, you know, they are part of the inner circle, right? Um, Peter, James, and John, so they have that thing going, so that's in their minds probably. Um, Chances are they also are people of a little more means than some of the other disciples. We're told that Zebedee had servants, so maybe they, you know, they're thinking, you know, we've got a little leg up just economically than some of these other folks. You know, we, you know, of course we would get the positions of honor. Uh, Chances are they're Jesus's cousins, mom, Salome, Mary's sister. So there's, you know, there's some stuff going on here, and sounds kind of like us in many ways. Presuming upon positions that really have nothing to do with worth or with the nature of the kingdom. So that can happen in churches, right? Well, we've been here, my family's been here for years, and I give money, and I... I deserve it. I deserve the place of honor. Failing to recognize the ethic of the kingdom. You want to be great, you be the least. So, he says, you don't know what you're asking. Uh, do you, uh, are you able to drink the cup or be baptized with the baptism which I am to be baptized? Now, we and Mark's audience would have had another understanding of cup and baptism, right? Those are, you know, the, the, the two sacraments. By the time he's written this, they would know. Cup is the Lord's Supper. Baptism is that initiatory rite into, into the family of God. So they're hearing that. But they're getting this, the meaning that Jesus has here. 
Both of these are images of suffering. See? Of active. In other words, active obedience to the cup. The cup of, of suffering that he prays about in Gethsemane, right? And by the way, while he's praying, guess who's sleeping? James and John and others. Oh, we'll do it. We can. In other words, so there's that. And baptism in this case means to be deluged, surrounded, submerged in suffering. He says, are you willing to drink of this cup and be baptized in this? Now, we, of course, now recognize that we are to be united with Christ in following him in and through suffering. This is not a great escape clause. We share in that cup. We share in that baptism. And, of course, presumptuously again, they say, oh, yeah, we can do it. Now, they may be just thinking, again, kind of figuratively, kind of sort of a loose association with what's going to be going on with, with what Jesus is doing. But they just, yeah, sure, we can do that. And I think sometimes we, in presenting the gospel, don't allow people to understand. You know, there's a hard road ahead of you, a constant repentance. People aren't going to necessarily like you. You must pass through and go through suffering to follow Christ. I wonder how many people go, oh, yeah, sure, yeah. Well, they did, and then Jesus says, all right, well, you're going to drink that drink, and you're going to be baptized with that baptism. Now, they may not have understood what he was talking about, but later, of course, we do, and they do as well. Uh, James is beheaded, eventually, by Herod, Herod Antipas, so he's, he's beheaded. And then John, of course, eventually lives in a life, but becomes exiled and all these things. So, yeah, they, they do. Um, but to sit on my right or left, that's not mine to give. And in Matthew's account, he's really specific. He says, that's the Father alone. So here you still see the subordination of Jesus to the will of the Father. These positions you're talking about, those aren't mine to give. But I'll tell you where this glory does come from. So he continues. And he says, well, you know those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles. The so-called rulers, is that word recognized? You may have so-called in your translation. Well, they lord it over them. Great men exercise authority over them. I mean, that's why you want power, right? Yeah. So you can be on the top and you can have your will be done and you can manipulate people. Think of all the despots and rulers through the centuries. There's a craving for that. And he goes, you see those and you're asking to have those positions. But that's not the way the, the kingdom operates. That's how the world operates. He says... It's not so among you. Whoever wishes to become great, and, and we're, by the way, this is, we need to put ourselves in that world. It's impossible. And we read this like church language. You know, we just kind of, oh yeah, that's right. But just think how stunning this would have been. Servants and slaves were the lowest dregs of society. Indeed, it was counted as a blessing from God if you weren't one of those people. And here Jesus is saying, you want to be great? Well, you need to be a servant. And then he takes, he ramps it up. Whoever wishes to be first, be a slave to all. Um, and I, you know, I don't know how much that's going to take for it to sink in because sometimes we walk around in our own lives with a chip on our shoulders. Don't you know who, who I think I am? And this is beneath me. 
This particular task is for others, not me. And Jesus says, no. The greatest are those who place everyone above them, a slave to all. And then, lest they think, well, he is God incarnate. He is the Messiah. The one they think is going to Jerusalem to be enthroned, and he is, again, ironically through the cross, but to be enthroned in a way they think is just like everybody else, like one of these great eastern potentates. And he says, even the Son of Man, meaning me, did not come to be served, but to serve. And what does that ultimate service look like? To give his life a ransom for many. The ultimate sacrifice. He's not going as a martyr or a victim. He's going willingly as a servant to all. To give his life as a ransom for many. That term ransom, of course, means to buy back a slave or a prisoner or someone like that. And that price has been paid through him giving his life. This is what we call the atonement. That word was made up, by the way, by William Tyndale in translating the New Testament from the Greek into English. Now, Wycliffe had translated into English to begin with, but from the Latin. He translated from the Vulgate. Tyndale trans was the first to translate into English from the Greek. And he needed a word for this thing that happens at the cross. Propitiation is a word that's often in your New Testament that all of us go, <laughs> well, he came up with atonement, at one meant. That's, he made that up to try to capture what the Greek is saying. But there's a ransom, there's a substitution involved here. Now the point is, the atonement is this, that by Jesus giving his life, we are given life. Now, that's the basics. Now, of course, theologians then debate, well, how does it work? The what is clear. The how is then what theologians debate and have debated and will debate through the ages. To whom is Jesus presenting his life as ransom? And how does this particular thing work? There were many early theories in the church, and there are still some who hold it today, that Jesus is presenting his life to the devil. Like Satan has the power of death and the grave, so he presents his life to the devil. And you can see some problems with that. That puts Satan on equal footing with God. There are others who kind of do a little bit in between and say, well, it's, it's God, but he uses Jesus sort of as bait for the devil. And the devil thinks he's won, and then, ha-ha, surprise. I've heard... Uh, a lot of contemporary Christian music use that particular theory of the atonement when they want to try to, you know, make fun of Satan in their songs and kind of like Satan thinks he's won and like Satan wouldn't know that the cross is his defeat. As if they, he didn't know that. And then, of course, as Paul, we're going to go with what Paul says. It's to God in substitution for the wrath of God that all of Israel's foibles and sins, and by extension, all of us, all of this comes crushing down. Hence that, that desire, let this cup pass from me if so, but not nonetheless, nonetheless your will but mine. Because all of that comes crashing down on this one focal point in history, 
Jesus, the Messiah, the enthronement, the glory in this grotesque, notice how it's been transformed, this grotesque image of a cross then to now the beautiful image of this sacrifice for us. Now, will we understand and wrap our brains all around the atonement and what he's saying fully ever? I doubt it. Maybe, well, one day. And then it'll be simple. Like, oh. But the, the beauty of that love, all of this, of course, is centered in love. All of this is centered in those passages from Isaiah 50 through 53 of all the suffering servant and laying down his life for his people. He says, that is why I came. Now, lest you think, man, when are they ever going to get it? They do eventually get it, okay? The disciples do eventually get it. James and John eventually get it. John writes in 1 John, he laid down his life for us, so we should lay down our lives for the brethren. He writes that later. So yeah, they get it. We get it, but do we get it? By the way, that's lost on people listening. I put fake parentheses around the first get it, in case you're going to. All right. So, that's the kingdom. And now to demonstrate that even more, and to prepare them for going into Jerusalem, where there's a lot of spiritual blindness, and they've been blind, we have once again an account of an actual healing of blindness. And it's a persistent request, which is our second outline point, beginning in verse 46. So, someone read it, that through the end of the chapter. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called to the blind man, Cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. There we go. The things, of course, that stand out, um, the thing that does stand out is his persistence. And what's interesting, too, is the reluctance of those following Jesus to have him shout these things out. Did you note that? So he's a beggar. He's blind, which means that's about all that's left to him is to be a beggar. And outside these city gates, Jericho by then, what we know as Jericho, you read in the Old Testament, was in ruins then, okay? You understand? I mean, there was no one lived in old Jericho. It was, it was already a ruined tell, uh, you know, an old, old, old archaeological site, although no one was engaging in archaeology at the time. A new Jer Jericho had been built just to the south, which was considered sort of a garden spot. Uh, the weather was temperate in the winter. In fact, King Herod the Great had his winter palace there. It was, it was a place of beauty. At one, uh, Antony presented to Jericho to Cleopatra when it was under his particular realm. He said, you know, this is yours. You can, you can have this. So it's, that's pretty nice, huh? What's the last gift you got? Did you get a city? Okay, no. All right, well, so it's, this, it's, it's, a, it's a different place where people live. In fact, 
the, the story we're not going to look at, I'm sorry, is uh, what, what's the famous on the way to Jerusalem in, Jer in Jericho? Someone up in a tree? Yeah. All right. Well, that happens in and around this, okay? Most likely happened just before this. Luke recounts it. Um, but we're not. Sorry. I just don't like stories about short people. No, okay. We're going to... All right. So... He's, he's there at the gate, um, which would have been a normal sight, and still is uh, in a lot of places. Um, sitting there blind, because that's the only thing he can do is to get, um, get alms. We're given his name. Mark's the only one who gives us the name and gives us the Aramaic translation. Bar Timaeus, Bar son of Timaeus. He gives us that Aramaic translation. Luke doesn't give us the name. He just says blind man. Matthew says there's two blind men. Oh, no. Bible's not true. Let's go home. Uh, in other words, there's, there's what, so how do we account for that? Um, well, it appears that Bartimaeus is the one upon whom Mark and Luke concentrate, that this other guy seems to be more of a tag-along. He could have even been someone to whom uh, Bartimaeus said, hey, this, let's just, you know, come with me. Let's, let's see this. And there could have been, this is just speculation, between his first level of persistence, Luke says it was when Jesus was going into Jericho. And it's in Jericho that we have the whole Zacchaeus episode. That between that, his persistence lasts more than just a few minutes. It's overnight into the next day. And it could have been in there. Goes, Let's go meet him on the way out. And again, this is just taking those accounts and trying to reconstruct them. But there's no need for you to think there's some sort of conflict. The main story remains the same. And he's saying, he heard that Jesus of Nazarene was coming, so he says, Jesus, son of David, whoa, have mercy on me. This is a shock, you're reading Mark, this doesn't come out like that. Here's a guy using a term of messianic kingship. Hence, maybe the reaction of some of the people. <laughs> They're on the way to Jerusalem, people already... You know, the, the, the Jewish leader's already out to get him. And now here's this guy proclaiming him the son of David. And it could have been just plain old annoyance. Not that any of us ever get annoyed by people begging. Okay, I'll let that sit. It could have just been plain old human annoyance. But there's a lot going on here, but he doesn't, he doesn't care. He continues to cry out. There is persistence in this. And how much does he understand his own use of son of David, he does recognize there's something special about Jesus, and this could be his understanding that Jesus is the Messiah. And with that, Jesus, of course, says, all right, call him here. What a great line. Bring him. Call him here. And now look at how they've changed. Oh, oh, it's okay. He's calling you. Come, he's calling you. Take courage. Be of good cheer, as some of your Bibles will translate it. That's the old, old school, right? That sounds more British. Be of good cheer. Yes. We have seven times in the Gospels where that phrase is used. That it's one word in the Greek. Seven times it's used. All, all but this one are out of the mouth of Jesus, which is pretty cool. So here it's people, having heard Jesus, they go and tell him, be of good cheer, he's calling you. And notice his reaction. It is immediate. He's blind and he gets up and runs. And he, he leaves his cloak. It's not like he had a cloak on and threw it down. 
It's laid out before him is where the alms are. He just leaves it. And he runs to Jesus, knowing his need and knowing who can fulfill it. And now we have the same question that he asked, that, that he asked of James and John. Well, what do you want me to do for you? And here he doesn't say, allow me to be a great leader in your kingdom. He goes, I just want my sight back. My sight back. So he had been sighted and had lost it at some point. And he, he calls him Rabboni. It's not rabbi, Rabboni. It's more of an intimate term for my teacher. My teacher. So there's even a recognition of intimacy. You're, you're the man who can do this. And Jesus says, go your way. Your faith has made you well. So, a request out of faith. Again, the, the, the sympathy and the empathy and the love of Jesus request, um, actually giving this request. And you see his reaction. There's thanksgiving and immediately he follows along the way. The road, but that term the way was of course one of the first uses of, a rec of, of terminology at what the Christian church is. It was the followers of the way. So here you have Real sight given in real faith, whereas his own disciples had a presumptuous request in a mistaken faith. But both recognizing him as the Messiah. Well, this leads into now him heading into Jerusalem, which we celebrate with what we call Palm Sunday. And we're going to actually look at that account next week. And... Tom is up. That's my signal. Let's pray. Thanks, Father, for this time we can share together. Uh, for all of us being together, what a great, uh, what a great uh, homecoming for so many of us to be back here again. Thank you uh, that uh, you are steadfast, you are faithful, you answer our prayers. Help us to remember uh, this lesson as we go through our week, asking ourselves perhaps whether our petitions are presumptuous or persistent in seeing your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. It's in the name of Jesus we pray this. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Bye, podcast Thank people. You,